Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. I am so excited to welcome to the show today a prolific actor with over 100 credits, and I hear even more to her name. She's appeared in such films as the Percy Jackson movies, the Paranormal Activity movies, Starry Eyes, Southbound, Lords of Salem, and so many more. Please welcome to this show, Maria Olson. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited that you were able to take time out of your busy schedule. You came from uh, a callback today, right? I did. I just left the callback, then I came here, then I got lost, then I found here, and here we are. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we have plenty to talk about then. Uh, I would like to start the show the same way I start every show, with the same first question I ask every guest, and it's simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. What's your point of entry? What's your interest? Why do you think it connects with you? But why horror? Okay, I think that's going to be a two-tier answer for me. Um, Some of my earliest memories, um, when I spent quality time with my mom, I was an only child, so it was very much me and her the whole time. Um, She used to read her Dracula books. Um, She used to, like, look at my Fangoria magazines with me. And I'm talking about when I'm, like, five or six or seven years old. You know, we used to watch horror movies together and talk about horror movies and, Mommy, what do you think Dracula would do now sort of thing? That's <laughs> questions I would ask. Right. So we connected um, over horror, and it obviously just turned into a very special time for me with her, and I'm carrying that love across to, to my enjoyment of horror now. So it reminds me of when times were simple and I had someone looking out for me the whole time instead of this horrible adulting thing we have to do. How interesting. Yes. Now, you said that your mother read Dracula books, so she was Mm. a horror fan as well. Oh, totally, yeah. And what led you from an interest to horror to wanting to pursue it as a craft as a performer? Uh, Well, when I started auditioning for projects in Los Angeles and I saw some of my footage, I was like, oh my gosh, she was so intense on screen. Like, these are the kind of projects you should go out for. Horror, science fiction, really heavy drama, um, fantasy, things like that. Mm And so I sort of tailored my submissions towards a lot of horror projects. And I got called in because my look is is different, interesting. And because I can sort of harness that intensity and bring it out on screen, I started booking horror. And I was like, well, hey, if this is going to happen, if I'm going to book, obviously I'm going to keep on playing in the genre. And I love the genre. And it's a a place where my... um, theater roots can come out because you have super complex and layered characters who are dealing with high emotion all the time. Right. You know, so it's not subtle. It's It can be a subtle genre, but most times it's not. And I like the display. I like the theatricality of it. So it's, and I love horror. I love, I don't know, finding out why horror interests people. Mm-hmm. I think it's our way of trying to explain the unknown and just tell ourselves that we know now and everything's going to be okay. And you mentioned your theater background and the yeah. theatricality of the genre. And uh, I had the pleasure this past summer of being on a panel with you. Actually, you came and did my panel at Comic-Con, mm-hmm. all about queer fear. And one of the discussions that we had there, uh, you had mentioned that you always felt like there was a connection between the world of theater and horror. Mm. And you, you sort of found your roots in horror because of theater. You spoke to this a little bit, but could you expand upon that concept? Sure. Um, with theater, there's the, to me, there's a huge difference between acting for theater and acting for film. Mm-hmm. One is open and out there to the audience, and the other one is internal and subtle, maybe just between you and the uh, and the camera or you and your screen partner. Um, with horror, I find you're dealing with more complex things and bigger emotions. Um, So I can pull my theater training into acting for a horror movie and I'm not afraid of those bigger emotional outbursts and things like that. Right. You know, um, I also think uh, when playing larger roles in horror films and that, I look at it as a whole and not just as scene by scene by scene. Because I'm, I'm trained in theater where we have to look at the play as a whole because, you know what, we're going to be out there for two hours doing it. We're not going to be doing one scene today and one scene next week sort of thing. So I, I tend to look at stories, um, the, the scripts that I'm involved in as a whole and see how the character changes and arcs and everything over the entire story, which is 
something else I pull from theater. Right. Um, my characters um, in the genre have ranged from, yes, some of them are small and subtle, but others, like in Way Down in Chinatown, for instance, which is a noir science fiction thriller, um, I was specifically very, very theatrical there. Right. With a different accent, with a different bearing, with everything. And that was pulled right out of out of theater. You know, so I think that I can do those things and I'm comfortable and at home with things like that because of my training in theater, which is literally it started when I was six, which is way too long now for me to remember that far back. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of being six, yes. you grew up in South Africa. You're, you're from South Africa. Mm-hmm. And you said when you were as young as five or six, you were looking at Fangoria. Oh, yeah. Tell me a little bit about the horror scene in South Africa. And did it exist or was it all American imports? We've, we've discussed this with guests before mm. who are from other countries, mm-hmm. how there was a lot of influence from here. But w- was there a horror presence? Not that I noticed, you know. Um, I grew up in a place called East London, which is a town about the size of Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. Um, the nearest really big city was like 900 miles away, Cape Town and Johannesburg. So we got like the hand-me-down theatrical productions, like, all right, Johannesburg did this last year. You're going to do it now with their sets and costumes, you know? Right. I had no film connection at all because it was just starting to grow film and TV in the bigger centers. I remember a time before TV, okay, in South Africa. (laughs) (laughs) So, and and what was starting to come out was like um, soaps and maybe a musical or two, something like that, but it wasn't horror. So all my horror influences was from the US or Europe or something like that. I literally remember reading Bram Stoker's Dracula from when I was about eight or nine years old and finding it odd first because of the style in which it's written, then reading it once a year, once a year and growing every time I read it until it was like, okay, this is easy to read now. I've got this down. And then I could really start appreciating it. Right. You know? A question I always like to ask guests who reveal that they have roots in Dracula, because it is one of these pieces of literature that has connected with people in so many different ways. Uh, and this is because this is a show where we discuss the art of film and horror. Do you have a favorite screen Dracula? Um, I do. I really do love um, Gary Oldman's Dracula. But I think my first spot must be taken by Frank Langella. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I saw that film when I was about 12 or 13 years old. And there's some of the, um, the visuals, the pictures have just stayed with me forever. When, um, for instance, there's an iconic scene for me when the coffin opens and Mina is like curled up with him in the coffin. And I'm like, oh, my God, that is just so beautiful. <laughs> so, Yeah. So you saw Dracula with Frank Langella when you were 12 or 13, but you also spoke a little bit about how you recall when movies and TV were starting to be introduced Mm -hmm. to your town uh, and connecting to horror at an early age. Do you remember Mm -hmm. the first horror film you saw that really caught your attention or just Um, at all? If we are going to classify Jaws as a horror movie, then it's going to be that one. Um, I remember being scared out of my wits um, in that scene where it's underwater and everyone's exploring and you don't know where the damn shark's going to come from. And suddenly there's a shark or a, a eaten, half-eaten corpse or something. Right. That I remember specifically. And I also remember a film called um, oh, The Haunted House of Horror. Oh. Which when I was like six, it was like, oh my gosh, this is terrifying. But now reading up about it, it's one of the campy 60 horrors from Hammer. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to see that again because I don't want to mess up my memories of it being scary. I know. You know, I think if I'm not mistaken, Frankie Avalon's in that. I think so, too. <laughs> the decidedly horrifying Frankie Avalon. <laughs> oh, my. Uh, so I think with a lot of people who found their way into the genre, it's as you said, we initially were kind of terrified, but then become obsessed with it in a way. Yeah. You know, I hardly ever sit down now to watch a film and and I get scared. I I don't get scared anymore at horror movies because A, I know exactly how they made what they put on screen and I'm sort of adult enough to, not maybe adult, but I don't know, um, mature, maybe enough to see okay, I'm not going to be scared about the mass killer running around in the woods. I'm going to be scared about other things um, in The Exorcist. I'm going to be scared about the possibility that I'm going to be in the MRI machine tomorrow with an undiagnosed brain injury or something right. like Reagan went through. 
Um, I'm scared about like um, Million Dollar Baby when um, Hillary Swank trips and falls and you see her in the hospital bed with this look of utter desperation. You know she's never going to get better. That is terrifying. Right. Not Jason, not Michael, not Freddie. They're entertaining and they're fun and it's interesting, but they're not terrifying because you know what? Freddy Krueger's not real. Right. Well, at least we hope not. Yeah, right. Although I think that like the scary dreams for me, and I think this just comes with adulthood, are not monsters. Mm. It's those like, did I remember to pay that bill? Do you ever have those dreams where you like have like the the like night sweats, like, or you're like all of a sudden back in college and you discover that you like mm-hmm. didn't go to a class for a whole semester, or like, so those are the scary dreams that I. <laughs> right. Or you're on stage and you're like, wait, I had lines. Exactly. Uh... The professional stress. <laughs> those. That's real horror, I think. Yeah. Um. So you got involved in theater fairly often, or fairly early, rather. Right, yeah. I w- I've been on stage since I was six, literally. Do you recall um, what the motivating factor to get involved with theater was? Um, at that stage, when I was six, my mom put me in dance classes, and we used to do an annual show every year. So that's how I got to feel at home in theater um, by doing the dance shows. Right. And then when I got into school, when I got a bit older, I started going out for theater auditions and things, got in some of the school plays, loved them, um, was incredibly nervous at that stage, but I grew out of that. So, right. Yay. Um, <laughs> year after I finished high school, I auditioned for Fiddler on the Roof, and I booked the role of the third daughter, um, which started my musical career off. I've been in like 15 to 20 big musicals on stage. Loved that. Loved them, really. Um, so I have a, a background in musical theater, you know. So what was the transition from stage to screen? Oh, that was when I came here to Los Angeles. Um, I couldn't do any screen in South Africa because I was stuck away in a corner somewhere. Right. Um, After I came here, um, I spent about a year figuring out what was where, did some community theater, and then I was like, uh, you know what? You've been wanting to act on screen since you were like 12 or 13. You're here now. You're in Los Angeles now. So just you want to do this? You think you can do this? I challenge you to do it. And then from challenging yourself... As we discussed, over a hundred roles, but you told me before the show something interesting. It's more than a hundred roles. It is. Um, my IMDb at the moment is sitting at about 174, um, but that's really only about half of the projects. A lot of the stuff that I've done are not on there. Music videos don't get put up there, for instance. Right. Commercials don't. Um, and a lot of the short films I did when I was starting out are more student projects at that stage. They're not up there either. You know, so I w- I'm I think I'm coming up on about 300 right now. Wow. Yeah. And you told me that you are the most credited person on IMDb from South Africa. I believe so. Yeah, I've looked at a couple of South African actors and whatnot, and yeah, yeah. That's amazing. And look at some of the f- the projects that you've been involved in. Percy Jackson, both of them, the Paranormal Activity movies. Uh, Starry Eyes, Lords of Salem. What's it like to know that you've achieved that dream, that you are in these big budget motion pictures that play across the world? It's it's strange because when you're like hustling, yeah. when you're acting, you always look to the future and not really the past. Because if you sit around and say, I was in Percy Jackson and they're <laughs> like, that's really nice, but that's 10 years ago now. And what you doing now and right. how are you going to pay your rent or whatever? So I always look to the future. Right. What am I going to book next? What am I doing next? Rather than, oh, look, I've done all of this because really the stuff that you've done sometimes doesn't even get you in the door. Right. You know, I mean, I've submitted for really amazing projects for leading roles that I'm perfect for. I don't even get called in for them. You know, and I was speaking about this to a friend the other day. Um, I get three results when I I submit for projects. I get ignored completely, even though I'm perfect. Mm -hmm. Um, I get called in and it's like, all right, audition, call back. And that's wonderful. Or I will get the, oh, my God, I just saw you in Starry Eyes or whatever. Do you want the role? Right. That's nice. Yeah, I was gonna say, <laughs> That's I, I a minority. <laughs> assume that option C is the one that you always want. Oh, yeah. But <laughs> hey, you got to pay your dues. Do you recall the first big film you were on that you really felt like you had chosen the right path? I had a moment like that, but it was not on a film set. 
Okay. I was in New York doing a seven-week run with Zombie Joe's Underground Theater uh, just off Broadway. And um, I took in a couple of Broadway shows on the nights we were not working. It was at a production of Boeing, Boeing, I remember, with um, Christine Baranski, of all people. I was in the audience and watching this, and I was like, oh, my gosh, you are on the right path. All you have to do is step up and grab what is waiting for you. Right. And that was such a profound moment for me. I've never forgotten it, although sometimes I have been in the depths of depression about something not happening or whatever. Right. But it was just that sense of it's there, it's waiting for you. All you have to do is step up and grab it. It's a powerful moment. Mm. And I have to say, you know, considering the content of the show and the queer audience that we cultivate, I'm sure a lot of people will love that you had an epiphanal moment Mm. while looking at Christine Baranski. (laughs) Because I know my listeners well enough to know that that is going to definitely be a pearl-clutching moment for some of them. I adore Christine Baranski. Uh, you know, it, it, she's been around for a while, and I feel mm-hmm. like she has hit this moment uh, in the zeitgeist recently where we're finally valuing mm. her power as, okay. as a performer. Because I remember when she was on sitcoms and she was mm-hmm. great, but now like when we see her in movies, we're just like, yeah, her. And I think that that's the interesting trajectory of a character actor, is that mm. sometimes they exist to to the betterment of the project and then all of a sudden the awareness happens mm. or maybe yeah. or maybe i'm wrong like you know maybe from the actor's perspective you have a different take on it character actors actors and actresses are special creatures you know um i am most definitely one even though i have taken leading roles in in feature films right it's just that we flit from project to project you never know when we're going to come up you never know what we're going to look like we're chameleons right but I have had the comments made about me like, oh, you're in everything. I see you everywhere. And I'm like, no, I'm in a small percentage of films. But people tend to think you're more out there than you are. Right. So you definitely get into the public consciousness, you know. And as you said, there's that moment where you transition from being known by the people who watch your kind of movies to being generally known. Right. Yeah. So. And especially in the horror community, I think what happens is we value the the players because we are sort of a smaller knit group. Mm. And we also uh, know what it's like to kind of exist as other. Mm. And so there is a value in, in the horror community. And I remember, you know, when I first became aware of you, uh, I it was exactly what you said. I watched a movie and then a couple days later, there you were in something else. And that's cool. It's like, but it's nice to see the people who are out there who are making these movies better keep getting gigs. And I, and that's exciting. Yeah. Uh, so I mentioned briefly while we discussed Christine Baranski, uh, the queer elements of the show. And uh, it is something that, you know, is at the heart of Dead for Filth. Mm. And... Um, we talk a bit about the theater background and in performance, but especially with regard to the genre, do you think there is a connection to queer identity and a draw to horror? I've never really thought about that, you know? Mm-hmm. Huh. I don't know. I think horror is pretty... You see, my ideas of horror, it's based on people, just people, trying to understand the unknown. Right. And I don't think it matters if you're straight or gay or bi or whatever you are, you know. I think it's one of our attempts, writing is another one, right. to understand what's going to – and rationalize what's going to happen to you after right. you die and how you deal with all of this. So I don't think it's – I don't think it can be aligned to any one specific group. Fear. I think fear is what motivates it and curiosity. Right. Wanting to know what goes on in the darkness – and maybe telling ourselves that we know we can handle it. I don't know. That, to me, is what's behind horror. Yeah, I think that's very astute. Uh, we often have discussed with guests the draw of otherness and how okay. there is that relationship. Mm-hmm. And I can, I, I can see all sides of the argument. But mm-hmm. I think that you're absolutely right in the respect that fear is universal and it cannot be aligned with one thing or another. Mm-hmm. But I think that maybe how we perceive it is more in, uh, informed by our identity because you can't help who you are. So you're going to look at things in a little different way. 
or maybe I'm off base there. Everyone sees the world through their own particular set of rose-colored glasses or, you know, um, everything you see or experience or understand is going to be colored by and formed to a certain extent by who you are and what you have experienced up until then. Right. You know, um, it comes comes at you through a filter of your own making. Right. So, ah, where am I going with this? Yes, then I agree that the people who are perceived to be or who perceive themselves to be more on the fringe, shall we say, are yeah. going to take something different away from horror. Yes. Yes. Um, personally, sometimes I think I'm from a different planet because I come at things sometimes with such a different mindset from other people. Um, it's like, I've been told I see things very differently. Okay. And I latch on to different elements, like in this room, for instance, that we're sitting in, everything is black except the colors over there by the wall. And I am instinctively drawn to the colors. And that's how I'm going to define this place, by the beautiful colors over there. Well, I'm glad it's not for our uh, mysterious atmosphere. I like, <laughs> I like because uh, listeners who, li- who listen every week have never actually seen the inside of the studio, but every now and then we'll mention something about it. I would just want their like mental mind palace of what this place is to be. Ha. Yeah, just so, because last week we referenced this bell that's on the table, and that was the last thing. Uh, but for you to describe it as, as mostly black, except for the color against the wall. But you didn't say what the color was. No, I did not. And I don't think we should. And, per- <laughs> and perhaps, let's say, we align ourselves with the colors. How about that? I like that. We found the colors in the dark. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Oh, Maria. Epiphany after <laughs> epiphany. Uh, but since we're talking about queer identity. Yeah. Um, and we talked about your roots in acting in South Africa, mm. but what was it like growing up as an LGBT person in South Africa? I must have been the dumbest LGBT person on the, on the continent because I didn't realize that I was different or that anything was, anything even was different for me until rather late in life. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned earlier my mom and about how we loved horror. Um, what I didn't say about my mom was that how she did not like gay or lesbian people. Oh. Yeah. And she, she often used to, like, be super judgmental and put people down. And I remember growing up, I was not buying into that at all. I'm like, leave people alone. They're just people. Don't judge. Don't put people down because they belong to a specific group or, you know, or anything like that. So as much as I loved spending time with my mom watching Dracula films, right? Um, I could see very clearly that what she was doing and her attitude towards people was not right. And I chose not to have that. You know, it was a deliberate choice not to be like that because I could see it was wrong. You know, Um, when I was growing up, looking back, obviously I can understand now what I was feeling. I I went to an all-girls school for one thing. (laughs) Okay. Um, I understand what I was feeling now, looking back. Right. But if you had stopped me in my tracks when I was 16, 17 at school going, oh, that teaches, I want to be in her class, I wouldn't have been able to tell you why. Right. I'm an only child, grew up in a hotel, as in separated from other kids on a hotel like on the outskirts of town. Um, So I, I was super closeted and in all respects, grew up not knowing anything about anything. And nothing connected in my mind, you know? Right. Um, In theater, we had a lot of gay guys in theater, and I adored them. I'm still friends with them now, and they're in, like, Thailand, and we speak on Facebook or whatever. Adore them, love them. Um, Fewer girls. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. That's slightly scary. Gary, that's, I don't understand. I'm just going to watch from over there at the other side of the room. And I don't know why. Right. You know, um, it, as I grew up, 
I spend most of my time working and studying. Okay. Yes, I had a couple of relationships with guys that lasted, I don't know, on average, maybe three weeks. Horrible. <laughs> Horrible. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, came here, got married to a guy. Wow. Still doesn't know what's in her head. Um, then I started to figure out more and more what my head was telling me I'm attracted to, you know? Right. Um, and... At that point, I was married, and I was like, okay, that, that's nice, but that thought, you're going to live in a tiny little box at the back of your head, mm-hmm. and it's going to stay there, and that's, that's nice. That box, go away. Right. You know, and I just filled my life with work and with, with films and with actual office work and with reading and writing and doing whatever um, until I met someone. And I'm not going to go into that story because you'll probably sue me. Um, <laughs> moving on. Um, but... Then it brought everything out and suddenly, okay, fine, all right, that's what's happening. Let's just face it. Let's get on with our life. And I don't define myself by my sexuality. I define myself by other things. Right. And I, unlike my mom, she would have kicked me out completely. Um, I don't judge myself. I don't have guilt. Right. I don't have any negative feelings anything like that i'm just okay that's how i am it's just like all right i have a super high iq that's how i am too let's move on and move forward and create and experience and travel and read and watch you know right so it's just how i am and i have zero hang-ups about it and i think that comes from from coming into it fully later in life after i have matured shall we say i'm lucky I know that. You got to come to your identity on your own terms. Mm -hmm. I am really interested in the aspect of the story where you said growing up in a small town Mm -hmm. and uh, being closeted in every respect, how Mm -hmm. how I liked how you phrased that. Because it was sort of removed from from these discussions. Yeah. And I think there's a whole generation, and obviously anyone in our community knows there are still many battles to fight. Mm. But today, in present day, the world is very different than even when I was in high school, where it was inconceivable to be out in high school. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, growing up in small towns, I, I think that a lot of youth in the community today don't realize why it took a lot of us a lot longer to figure out who we were because it wasn't discussed. I mean, literally, if you lived in a town, like in small town America, small town South Africa, where no one talked about it, you wouldn't even, like, what is going on? Exactly. You know, it was like, okay, you're going to grow up and one day you're going to have a boyfriend, then you're going to get married. And I'm like, all right, when I'm like 10, okay, that's what my life's going to be. Okay, okay, okay. Right. You know? And then when you grow up and that doesn't happen, and you're like, oh, my God, what's wrong with me? And then you slowly figure out that, no, the stereotypical life that's that your mom wanted or led or whatever is not for you. Right. You have a different path, a different way, just because of how you are. Yeah. You know? And you are out. Mm-hmm. Would you say you, you were working in film before you came out? I, I was, yeah. Did you encounter any challenges after coming out after having an established career in, in film mm. did were there any new challenges presented to you no not me i'm lucky as i said i'm super lucky yeah, yeah that's great yeah i mean so, somebody took it into their head to to make me a page on wikipedia and it's like and she's out and blah 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 so it's common knowledge it really right. is you know and i'm like okay that's that that's fine Right. But it's never negatively impacted me that I know of. Right. Now, I will ask the other question, and I remember talking about this at Comic-Con. Lesbian aside, as a woman working in film, Mm. what sort of challenges have you faced? I did touch on this at the Comic-Con panel um, where I said I was finding fewer and fewer roles to go out for. You know, mm-hmm. um, I even find sometimes uh, feature films with roles and they're 100 percent male. I'm like, seriously, really, really in this day and age still? Right. It's so you boring. Know? So it is. It's <laughs> boring. So it's not um, it's it's ageism. 
Right. And it's sexism at the same time. And it's like, let's sort of kind of get over this, please, because I want to work. I want to work till I'm 98 years old or whatever. Right. You know, and I want there to be roles. And I'm not saying make me the lead in a movie if I'm 70 or whatever. I'm saying I'd like there to be juicy supporting or leading roles or even, you know, cameos or whatever. Right. For people from all walks of life. You know, just because a woman is now over 40 or 50 or whatever doesn't mean that she's not interesting and shouldn't be in story. I honestly think the older people get, the more interesting they are. And this is something Mm -hmm. that Hollywood has never really wanted Mm -hmm. to seize onto. We see it in indie cinema and foreign film. Mm -hmm. But even from a writer's perspective, Mm -hmm. the older I get, the less I want to write like a horror movie where it's a bunch of teenagers. Mm. Because you know who really just doesn't have the experience of life is a bunch of teenagers. Yeah, it's sexy. Yeah, it's funny. Blah, blah, blah. But give me a movie of like middle-aged women who have seen some shit because you know that they have because the world is not a nice place to to people. Right. Uh, And let's put them into a situation where they fight back. I'm going to bet on those ladies 100% over teenagers, and I bet their story is going to be more interesting. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's the difference between studio and indie. Yeah. Okay. They have different objectives. Studio is money. Money is your younger audience. Younger audience wants to see younger people. Right. That's the whole thing. That's the whole, like, trap. Right. (sighs) Well, (laughs) on to to more fun things. In these many credits that you've had, you have worked in a diverse range Mm. of materials. From speaking of of big studio pictures for younger people, you're in the Percy Jackson movies, which are very geared to young people, and these, like, large-scale fantasy epics. Uh, you did work in the Paranormal Activity movies, which were big budget found footage yeah. cinema. Uh, you know, one of my favorite roles of yours is in Starry Eyes, which you referenced earlier, because I think that you are very intense in an awesome way. Like, you're so riveting. Um, do you have a favorite performance of yours? Or do you have a film that you're in that you wish more people had seen? Oh, um, yes. Um, one of, one of my favorites, and I'm not going to call it my ultimate favorite because I don't pull favorites, um, is, is the film, um, it's got two names. It's originally called Another, um, the film by Jason Bognaki with Epic Pictures. Okay. Um, it's now called The Devil's Daughter. Um, it's about witches and witchcraft. I'm one of the witches in it. Um, to me, whenever I watch that film and I've seen it on small screen in the theater everywhere, it is so incredibly powerful. There's just something in the third act that just elevates it above and beyond normal cinema for me. And we've got two reactions to the film. What the hell is this? I hate it. Right. Or, oh my gosh, it's the best thing since Suspiria. It should have been the third entry in the um, Argento's like series, you know? Right. And I don't know. There's just something magical and enchanting about that film right and it's powerful and it's just beautiful visually as well it's a very very special film for me you know um but hey yes i've done so many and they're all special for different reasons i think like i spin in your grave deja vu like oh my gosh Let's, that experience. Let's talk a little bit about that. I know that you can't talk about the plot, but yeah. you filmed a part in I Spit on Your Grave, Deja Vu, which is the direct sequel to the original film. Mm-hmm. And uh, tell me a little bit about your experience on that and the production of that movie. Oh, that was absolutely amazing. We shot for um, 29 days, I think, uh, two years ago right now. Um, I was on set for 18 days. Um it was wonderful. Um, Mayor Zarki, who wrote the original, directed the original, wrote and directed this one as well. Um, and if ever we didn't make our day, he was like, oh, don't worry, we'll just add it another day. So <laughs> there was no um, stress as in, we have 10 days, we have to do it in 10 days, oh my gosh. So we just added extra days and got everything right, got everything the way he wanted it. Right. Um, I was working with Camille Keaton and Jamie Bernadette and a whole bunch of other wonderful people. Um, it was literally one of the best experiences of my life on a set. Everyone was amazing. Terry Zarki is now my adopted brother. You know, he's, he's adorable. Um, the role that I played was just so wonderful. She was so complex and so layered and so brave. 
of course, when you see it, people are going to have a different understanding of the role because I do horrible things. Right. But for me, for my character, I was doing them for the right reasons. That's the kind of thing I like to play with. Okay. Feel sorry for me because of how I understand why I'm doing things for. Yes, I'm going to cut off someone's head or whatever, but I want you to feel sorry for me while I'm doing that. Do you, <laughs> do you think that the most interesting villains are sympathetic ones? Mm-hmm. The most interesting ones are sympathetic and where you can identify with them. It's like you're suddenly in the space of, oh my gosh, if I was there, I could do that too, even though I can see the horror of doing that. Right. You know? Yeah, because it's really ultimately about choices. Because mm. we could all be a villain at any point, and it's the mm. choice that we make. Mm-hmm. And I think that even sometimes villains, screen villains, I don't want to give real life people this this Mm-mm. power, but like... You kind of get Darth Vader, but you shouldn't. <laughs> you know, that kind of deal. We are all light and dark. Yes. You know? So I spit on your grave, and you, you mentioned Camille Keaton, mm. who was the star of the original film. Uh, is a very cultural touchstone moment in genre films, exploitation cinema. Uh, and what I've always been interested in um, is this particular movie. It is a rape-revenge film, the original the film. The original, yeah. And it's all... Uh, it it definitely is divisive with audiences. Mm-hmm. And what I think is really interesting, I know Camille, and we've had this conversation a few times, uh, and she said, you know, this movie was protested, and it's also taught in college classes mm-hmm. because there are people who view the original I Spit on Your Grave as a very feminist picture, and there are people who think that it's a very anti-feminist picture. Mm-hmm. Uh and to get to work on the direct sequel years later with the original director and the original star, um, what do you think about this impact of, of this kind of controversial film? What Had you seen the original? Did you have thoughts mm-hmm. on it? Yeah, I had seen the original about two or three years before I auditioned for the, the sequel. Mm-hmm. Um, what I didn't know at the time that I saw it was that it was the film that launched the exploitation genre, the rape revenge exploitation genre. Right. You know, and also what I didn't know when I saw it originally was it wasn't written to be feminist or non-feminist. It was written as therapy. Okay. Mayor, Mayor Zarki was working through his own experience of finding the real life Jennifer Hills in the woods after she had just been attacked and raped and he and his family took her to the hospital. Oh, wow. I yeah. didn't know this. Yes. This is all, it's all based on true story. You know, um, actually this will all be explained in the documentary that is presently being made as well. It's going to probably be released um, with um, I Spit on Your Grave Deja Vu. It's, it's true. Wow. Huh. Yeah. So Mayor was trying to work through his feelings and his thoughts and, you know, he's utterly, obviously utterly horrified by what happened. Right. And it's like, okay, I will put this down as cinema, as something visual, just to show what happens in the world, the horrors that happen in the world. But I'm going to make Jennifer Hills ultimately triumphant. So it gives power back to the woman. It was originally called Day of the Woman. Right. Um, when its name was changed to be more sensationalized, spit on your grave, Mayor hated it. Absolutely hated it. I know Camille doesn't like the yeah. spit on your grave title yeah. either. Uh, but that's what you were saying earlier, the difference between money and, exactly. and story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was a studio that was rolling it out to drive-ins at the time. Mm-hmm. And they thought by putting a spit on your grave on a drive-in, there's also an, uh, my favorite thing is when they did the I Spit on Your Grave po- poster, that famous image where it says, you know, this woman has just mm-hmm. uh, burned blah, 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 five men, but there's only four. There's only four. Yeah, but five was a better number for mm-hmm. marketing. So it looks how even even the the, the fingers of, of money men interrupting art, I guess. But I think it is uh, a, a, a touchstone film, both mm-hmm. in horror and cinema. Mm-hmm. because it prompted a discussion. And I think oh, yeah. that's really important about any piece of art, mm-hmm. if it can do that. Uh, the way it was made as well. You know, if you look back on it now, you can see, it's obviously it was made in a very specific way. She doesn't have much dialogue. Right. And um, there's no music. Um, as a product of its time, I guess, is its look. It's very grainy, um, 70s, 80s look. Right. You no, know, which obviously is not going to happen in the sequel. 
because, hey, we have different equipment now. Right. So it's going to have a different look and a different feel, but continuous characters and the same through line, emotional through line. Let's right. put it that way. Well, I can't wait to see it. Mm. Do you know when it's coming out? Or are you? I do not. I know they have picture lock, and I know um, the next steps are um, sound design and color correction. Great. Yeah. So that's one to look forward to. But as we know, you have been all over the place doing all sorts of things. What else have you been working on lately that you can talk to us about? Let me see. Lately, um, I just wrapped a feature called Seven Devils up in um, Port Angeles in Washington, mm-hmm. which was absolutely amazing. Um, great project, beautiful scenery. Oh, my gosh. Um, I'm in the middle of shooting a feature film, um, which I cannot really speak about. But we're doing amazing things in a studio in Hollywood Hills. Okay. Um, it's sort of kind of like a, a fantasy adventure with a steampunk-ish flair and animation and kids. And I think it's going to be super special. Um, well, what I'm else interested. I wrapped um, No Knock List in West Virginia in June. And they just released the first like teaser trailer yesterday. Um, okay. In October, my film, um, X-Man 2 Overkill, that's X with an X, not X. Oh, <laughs> so like a hatchet X. Like a hatchet X. Gotcha. That came out um, a couple of days back. Another film that I'm in came out, 60 Seconds to Die. It's literally a, um, a an anthology film of 60 second long horror short films. Oh, yeah, I heard about this. Mm-hmm. Yep. There was that. What else have I done? I'm busy shooting Ghost in the Graveyard in New York. Um, I'll be going back for my third time in January. So you're shooting several movies in tandem right now. Yeah. How do you do? You sleep well at night? I, I assume. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you seem very busy. Yeah. No, I wrapped a short film like three weeks back. A very powerful, very amazing short film um, that brings in the whole Me Too hashtag Me Too movement and everything. Um, so that's in post production right now as well. Um, and I have about, if everything goes well and we all get funding docs in a row, I have about four or five or six features lined up for like the first and second um, quarters of next year. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Um, and a whole bunch still in post-production. This should be coming out next year. So... Well, plenty to keep our eyes out for you. Yeah. Uh, and one thing I want to ask about, because we've talked about your very prolific acting career, mm-hmm. but I also know that you are a producer. I am. Um, I haven't been able to produce a lot for the last two years because I'm also holding down a full-time job and that sort of like eats away at everything. Right. But it helps to pay the rent, you know. Yeah. Um, Let me see. Consumption, which is a feature that I co-produced and acted in, Mm -hmm. um, got distribution um, worldwide, actually, um, earlier this year. Um, That was Brandon Scullion's Consumption, which has won awards at festivals, et cetera, et cetera. So that's up there. I did... um, Way down in Chinatown, I did uh, something sinister. I did Far Away, um, my own short film, uh, which, of course, I cannot remember what it's called right now because there's <laughs> hundreds of names floating around in my head. Um, I, I was part of about six or seven feature films, and I had to withdraw, unfortunately, from a couple others when I had to get the day job. Right. So, you know, I continued... After years hiatus, I continued my acting career, but I haven't been able to take up the producing reins again because that needs time. Right. And I just don't have time to produce and act and work and commute right, right now. The commute is the true horror oh, movie of anyone living in, yes. in Southern California. Uh, I will ask, though, since we're talking about mm. the world of production, because um, I assume you'll get back to it as well. I hope so, yeah. As a producer, do you look for different things in a movie than you do as an actor? Or what? what is your kind of litmus for both? Yeah. Um, <laughs> we were sitting in the trailer um, for Percy Jackson one day, having our makeup and hair done. And next right. to me was Pierce Brosnan. And somebody asked him, oh, my gosh, why did you do Mamma Mia? And he was like, it was a job. Right. You know, for acting... It's like, all right, I need that next paycheck. I need that next job. All right, the script's not going to win any Oscars, but you know what? It's a job. It's going to get distribution. It's going to get out there, and I'll have a chance to play on set. So 
the test of whether I want to be a part of it is not as strict for acting as it is for producing because producing is a long-term, very expensive, both time and money, commitment, Right. you know. Um, if I want to get involved with something producing, I have to love the script. It's got to be, to me, the best script that it can be, you know. Um, right. The story's got to be spot on. Um, it's it's got to fulfill a lot more criteria than just all right. I'm going to spend two days working on your project, acting. Right. You know, so it it's and it would be also something I put my company's name on. Right. So I want when I was still producing, I wanted the Monster Works 66 name on films that I can be proud of. And as it happened. Um, the films that my company did co-produce are across the spectrum. It's like supernatural thriller to that um, science fiction noir, black and white, um, to an action-adventure movie in the Philippines sort of thing. Right. So it was across the spectrum, but that's because each of those projects were really, really good in their own way. Right. You know, I'm not going to just sign up to producing something that I don't like. I've often had people come to me and say, oh, can we just put your company's name down as a co-producer? Here's a script. I'm like, dude, no. No, no, no. <laughs> if I come on as co-producer, I have an actual creative say in what happens. Right. Because I want it to be the best that it can be. Right. You know? Yeah. Well, it's clear that movies and a passion for communicating these stories mm. is literally part of your DNA. And as such... This would normally be the time of the show where I would ask you, what have you been watching lately that's really inspired you? But I also know that, listen, just listen to all these things that you're doing. What time do you have to watch things? You'd be surprised. But uh. <laughs> I will ask, is have you seen anything recently that's really been inspiring to you? And because you love and exist across many genres, it doesn't have to specifically be horror, but what have you seen recently that you like? Two things. Um, I rewatched my most favorite film of all time, which is The Lovely Bones, mm. because I had to get into a certain headspace for my short film, and that just puts me in that headspace. And I binge watch um, series when they're finished. Okay. Okay. So I am in the middle of Penny Dreadful. Okay. I really liked Penny Dreadful. I am loving Penny Dreadful. Um, I'm at the end of the second season. The witches in the second season blew me away. I now want to do witches, 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 projects <laughs> of witches. And um, another character that just also blew me away was Billy Piper's um, Lily Frankenstein. Yeah. And she has this amazing monologue in like the eighth episode of something, which just stops the entire show dead for me. And she was just brilliant in that. Um, I think Billy Piper is a treasure, by the way. Oh, she's God, an she's amazing awesome. actor <gasps> who I don't think stateside got the love that she deserves, but she okay. is amazing she's she's awesome she's yeah. amazing i didn't know she existed before before penny Drive. oh you know? man she uh she was uh rose tyler and doctor who a heartbreaking ah. character uh but she also has been in a number of different bbc productions okay. and that's when i really kind of caught uh she caught my attention yeah. um no, I really like Penny Dreadful because I'm I'm a big enthusiast of gothic horror and a, a longtime fan of Hammer. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I, in a way, feel like Penny Dreadful is just a grand homage to all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, more so, of course, Penny Dreadful novels and, 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 oh, yeah. and the yeah, actual yeah, yeah. literary sources. But um, the look of the world is so great. Beautiful. Uh, I just want more of it, to be honest. Yeah. You know, I, I don't yet know why it, why it ended. You know, because it's it's probably unique. Money. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, since you mentioned witches, do you have a favorite witch movie? I'm going to go Suspiria. Yeah? That's a yeah. good one. Yeah. Yeah. I am not going to watch the remake. I'm putting that out there right now. All right. I'd like to watch the 4K restoration of the original. Yeah, I think it's finally coming out here mm -hmm. soon. I know it theatrically rolled out, but it should be out on Blu-ray eventually. Um, I, because I don't get to ask this very often... Uh, you mentioned your history in theater. And the mm -hmm. one great thing about being a performer in theater, unlike movies, unless there's a remake made at some point, movies are sort of fixed performances, but there are always remountings re of theatrical productions. So if you're a theater actor, there's always the chance that you get to play the role that you always loved. Is there a role in theater that you've always wanted to play? I think I'm going to go with Elizabeth Barrett Browning, actually. Um, again, of course, I forget the name of the damn play, um, <laughs> but I like to give my listeners homework. They can do, <laughs> do a little 
the Barretts of Wimpole Street. There we go. Um, obviously, you know, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, the poetess um, who married Robert Browning, she was in the eldest daughter in a family of like 14 children. She was wheelchair and bedridden until the love of her life, Robert Browning, came into it and 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 inspired her to get up and to escape the family. And just that strength to do that and the conflict that everything must have created out of that, it's just very, very um, attractive to me. I'd, I'd love to do that role. Um, another role that I so wanted to play and that I actually had the chance to play was Mrs. Kendall in The Elephant Man. Oh. Yeah, I played that two, three years back now. Beautiful role. Absolutely amazing experience, you know. But I'm discovering new plays every day, and there's... I love stage acting. I love screen acting. I think what I love is emotion and getting stories across and being able to pull whoever's watching me into my world. Ever there was like a perfect moment to wrap this all up with a bow. I think that's it. Maria, before we go, because uh, this is the first episode of 2018, I want to see, do you have any words of wisdom for people tackling a new year? I think we need in 2018 more kindness, more compassion, more love, more tolerance between everybody. If we can just figure that one out, we should make it to 2019. Well, I will co-sign that. Where can people find you in the world? Under every rock. No. Um, <laughs> Facebook, um, my Maria Olson fan page. Um, Instagram, at Maria Olson 66. Um, Twitter is also at Maria Olson 66. Um, IMDb, obviously, my own page there. Great. Yeah. That's it. Well, thank you so much for coming to the show and bringing your insight and your stories. It means a lot that you took the time out of your very busy schedule to come talk with me today. Thank you for having me. Listeners, please check out Maria and all of her various projects forthcoming and already existing in the world. I would list them, but as you heard, there are many. (laughs) She is super talented and truly amazing, and I'm glad that she was able to join us today. So again, thank you. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, yours always, and Glam and Gore. Good night, and good luck. Dead for Filth has been a Reverie Studios production. The show is executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, produced by me, Michael Verratti, Dominic Segetti, and Drew Phillips. The sound engineers for this episode were Dominic Segetti and Drew Phillips. Music by My Own Cubic Stone. Edited by Drew Phillips.